Welcome back to another episode of The Wire Podcast. I am your host, Ryan McCrary. And first off, I want to apologize because in um, the last podcast I did, I was supposed to do the winners and losers of the NBA offseason. And for some reason, I skipped over the winners and only did the losers in that episode. Um, and actually, I do know the reason is because I have... I, Whenever I do this these podcasts, I have like a list of notes. I have notes written down for the episode, and so um, I decided for that episode to do the losers first, and then do the winners. But the losers um, section of my notes was lower than the winners, so I just forgot to go up and talk about the winners. So we're gonna talk about the winners first off today. Uh, then I'm gonna talk about the James Harden situation. Uh, I gotta talk about BYU Coastal Carolina, that game was phenomenal, um, and then I wanna talk about Raiders Jets, and I think, um, maybe later on this week I'll talk about all, the, some, some more NFL games that happened this weekend, it's been a really weird week, uh, because we had two games last night for Monday Night Football, we have another game happening today on Tuesday, uh, we got Ravens versus Cowboys, so it's been a long week of NFL fo- football, um, and there's some other games I do want to discuss, so that, I'll probably do an episode on that later this week, but for now, let's just go ahead and get started with the winners of the NBA offseason, which should have happened, uh, or which should have been a part of last, or the last episode I did, but I just forgot, so let's start off with my first winner for the offseason, and that is the Philadelphia 76ers. I really, really like what the 76ers did this offseason. Uh, they got Daryl Morey from the Rockets. He's a part of their organization. He isn't their GM. Um, Elton Brand is still their GM. Um, so Daryl Morey didn't take that title from him. But he is a part of their franchise, and he's helping them make decisions. So he does have a, a lot of influence within the, uh, the franchise and within that front office. But he doesn't officially have the title of general manager, but as you can see, or as you can, you can probably tell with the moves that they made, that they have made so far, um, that he definitely, um, was a big part of it because, um, they made a lot of, a lot of moves that improved their, their, uh, floor spacing. Oh, they signed a lot of guys and they drafted a lot of players who are good three point shooters. Um, and, and that kind of fits with, Maury's mindset and with Maury's uh, philosophy uh, with team building, and so I am I'm pretty sure that he has a um a pretty that he he that what his opinion um is pretty big within the the Philadelphia 76ers organization. But let's start off with what they did in the draft. So at pick number twenty six, they got no that wasn't twenty six. Sorry, that was twenty one. I believe, don't know why I had it written down as 26, but I believe, yeah, this was the 21st pick, they selected Tyrese Maxey, a guard out of Kentucky, um, Tyrese Maxey is a, he's undersized, an undersized combo guard, but he is a really good shot creator, um, a, a really good finisher, he was such a good finisher in college, despite not being the greatest athlete, um, and despite, despite being undersized, he was still a good finisher. Um, he can finish with, with touch. He got good footwork when attacking the basket. Um, his shooting percentages weren't great this year at Kentucky, but he was a really good shooter in high school. And I think that his uh, I think he's going to be a good shooter 
in the NBA. His free throw percentage was fine in college. He's got good shooting indicators. I think the shooting will improve at the next level. Um, and he didn't have the he, – he struggled as a freshman a little bit. It wasn't the greatest freshman season of all time. And so that's a big reason why he fell. Um, but he, there, there was no reason for him to fall to um, – out of the top 20, he was easily a top 20 or easily one of the 20 best players in this year's draft. I'm really shocked that he fell uh, to the 21st pick. Uh, but he, he gives him a shot, a secondary shot creator to play alongside Ben Simmons. Even if he doesn't start right away, um, he's definitely definitely going to start um, sometime in the future. I'm sure of that. Uh, Tyrese Maxey, super good player. He can play off the ball. He can play on the ball. Um, he isn't a great passer, but he's good enough. Um, I really like Tyrese Maxey, and he's such a fundamentally sound defender um, that I think he's going to be at least a neutral on that end, if not a positive um, on that end of the floor. I love the pick. Thought it was awesome. Oh, great value. Probably the steal, like, or one of the steals of the draft, honestly. Um, I love this pick. It's a great fit. Um, and he really helps out this franchise. I love that selection. Then in the second round with the 49th pick, they selected Isaiah Joe, who I had as a top 20. Uh, was it top 20? I don't. I actually don't think I had him as a top 20. I definitely had him as a top 30 prospect in this year's draft. Um, he's a, a great shooter. Can shoot from can shoot from distance. Can shoot off the dribble. Can shoot off the catch. Um, he's a versatile shooter. A dynamic shooter. Um, and, and he's got some good size. He needs to gain some muscle. Uh, he needs to work on his frame a little bit because he's a bit weak um, in that standpoint, or from that standpoint. Uh, but he's got incredible length. I think he has a 16 wingspan. So he's got this, and he's 6'5. So he's got the size. He's got the length to be a positive defender in the NBA. He just needs to work on that frame a little bit. But I think the shooting will translate. I know his three point percentage. Wasn't that good this year at Arkansas, um, but his freshman year he shot forty. He shot yeah he shot forty percent I believe, um, and for his career he shot really really well from three at Arkansas. And last year the reason why his three point percentage was thirty four percent was because he was taking so many per game like he was shooting a high volume of threes, and like the the um. The degree of difficulty on his attempts was pretty high. Like he was taking a lot of step backs, he was taking a lot of shots with defenders in his space, he was taking a lot of shots from a long distance. So there was a reason why his uh, shooting percentage from three was low this year. Um, but like I said, the the 76ers did a great job of improving their floor spacing and making a lot of moves. Uh, to improve that part of their of their roster, and Isaiah Joe is a huge part of that. I think Joe can play as a rookie, um, coming off the bench. He's going to be a really good three point shooter. Um, and actually, I, I I think ESPN doesn't even have him on their depth chart, but I definitely can see him getting s- some minutes, even as a rookie. Um, I love that pick. He is officially part of their roster. I think I don't I can't remember if he actually has a guaranteed contract or not. I know there were some second-round picks this year that got guaranteed contracts. I can't remember if he's one of those guys or if he's on, like, a two-way or not. Don't know, uh, but I really like that pick. And at 58, uh, the 76ers selected Paul Reed, who is an advanced stats <laughs> junk. I mean, like, if you're in advanced analytics 
junkie, you love Paul Reed. I mean, his advanced statistics were off the charts this year. He's such a good defender. Um, like his defensive win share numbers, his defensive box plus minus was incredible at DePaul. Um, and he's got some some shooting potential. Um, and he's really mobile for a big. He's just such a good good defender. I like that pick. And at at, at like with the fiftieth pick, you know you can take some risk. And so this is a. Uh, I mean, is there really risk taking a guy like Paul Reed at fifty eight? I don't think so. Uh, I think this is just a high upside selection here. Um, I, I really like this pick. Even if he doesn't ever really play big minutes in the NBA, uh, this is just a home run swing. And at 58, uh, there's not a lot of risk in that. Now let's move on to talk about what they did in free agency. Uh, they traded Al Horford for Danny Green. Love that trade. Horford was a terrible fit in Philly, uh, and his contract was horrible. So they traded him for Danny Green, who can spread the floor. He's a, a, a good defender. Uh, and he's on an expiring contract, so they got some flexibility with that. They also traded Josh Richardson for Seth Curry. Now, Richardson is a better player than Seth Curry, uh, mainly because of his defense and his two-way impact. Uh, but Richardson isn't, wasn't the greatest fit alongside Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. And Seth Curry is one of the better shooters in the league. Um, he really is. Like, that dude can light it up from distance. I like that trade. Seth Curry will help out with the force facing, just like Isaiah Joe and just like Danny Green. Um, and then they signed Dwight Howard. I like that pick, or I like that that uh, signing. He can play. He can back up Joel Embiid, provide some valuable minutes, uh, as, and even just being a veteran presence in the locker room. I think that's great uh, for this franchise. For this franchise, I love. Uh, I like that signing as well. I think they just had a, a great offseason. You know, their their roster for the last couple of years hasn't been the just the fit with everybody hasn't always been the best. And I think um, they did a great job of uh, of addressing their issues, improving their force facing, and getting a secondary shot creator in Maxi to play alongside Ben Simmons. Um, and, and like I mentioned earlier, I don't know if Maxi will play much as a rookie. Uh, but I think in the near future he will be a star. He'll he'll be a starter for them um, sooner rather than later. I love what they did in the off season, and I think they put themselves in a position to be a legitimate championship contender this year. I honestly do. Now my second winner, I have the Atlanta Hawks, and I will admit I am a Hawks fan. Um, so you can say I'm biased, but I think I have proven time and time again on this podcast and on my website. Um, that I am unbiased. I don't show bias to the teams I root for. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat things. I, I, I'm blunt. I keep it real. Um, and, and, and I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to, I'm not going to show any bias towards teams that I root for. But I, I legitimately think that the Atlanta Hawks had a wonderful offseason. Um, there were some things that I didn't love. Um, but there were a lot of things that I think they did well. Um, starting off with the draft, with the number six pick, they took Onyeka Okongwu, who I absolutely love. And I think Onyeka Okongwu uh, had an argument to be a top two prospect in this year's draft. I honestly do. I think uh, Okongwu's versatility as a defender for his position is uh, is incredible. Um, he's a really good play finisher. Maybe there's some, there might be some um, three-point shooting potential with him. 
because um, he was a, a decent shooter in high school. Didn't really get to show that at USC, but we'll see if that translates to the NBA. Um, but his versatility as a defender is awesome. He can play different kind of pick-and-roll coverages, um, and he's, he's a good defender, good rim protector. And this pick didn't really make sense at the time, considering that the Hawks had Clint Capel on, on their roster and Dwayne Dedman. Um, so this selection really just crowded. It, it just made it made their um, it crowded their center position. Um, but they they did end up trading Dwayne Dedman to the Pistons. Um, so that made the selection a lot better. Um, and with with the departure of Dwayne Dedman, I actually really like this pick. It gives them somebody that can play different kind of pick and roll coverages, someone who can um, provide value as a role man, someone who can protect the rim, um, and also someone who's just a, an extremely mobile and versatile big. And in the modern age of basketball, you really need that. Um, and I think his archetype is extremely valuable in the modern age of basketball. And I don't really care that he's undersized at 6'9". I think he's a stud. And it'll be a lot of fun watching Trey Young on Yeka pick and rolls uh, for the time being. I don't know if he's going to play. I, I don't know how much he's going to play because we have a lot of depth on our roster now. And he's not going to start the season because he has a fractured foot. And he's playing like he's going to have to compete with Clint Capella. I could see him starting as a rookie at some point um, because I think he's just that good. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, and then in the second round with the 50th pick, the Hawks selected Skylar Mays out of LSU, who is a combo guard. He's got a good size. Um, he can handle the ball. He was really good as a pick-and-roll ball handler at LSU. He's one of the more efficient pick-and-roll ball handlers in college basketball last season. Um, he's a good shooter. Not the greatest athlete. Um, that's probably his biggest weakness. But he's super smart. Got a great basketball IQ. And... Um, he's likely not going to get minutes this year because, like I said earlier, we have so much depth, especially at the guard position. Um, but for a two-way contract, he's good value, um, and I thought he should have been picked higher. Now, in free agency, this is where the Hawks were the most active. They made a lot of moves in free agency. You know, they traded Dwayne Dedman, I mentioned that earlier, but they also, they signed Danilo Gallinari, they signed Chris Dunn, they signed Rajon Rondo, they signed Mogdan Bogdanovich, and they signed Solomon Hill. Now, Solomon Hill is just going to be an end-of-the-bench guy, not going to play much. But everyone else is going to play a pretty big role. Mogdan Bogdanovich is projected by ESPN to be uh, our starting shooter, or our starting small forward, along, and then he's going to be on the wing alongside Kevin Herter. Um, Bogdanovich is a, is a, a dynamic uh, secondary creator who I think is going to... Help out Trey Young is going to kind of take take the load off of Trey Young's shoulders a little bit. He's a good shooter, can handle the ball a little bit. Um, he's a solid secondary creator, and I love that signing. We may, I think we overpaid a little bit to get him, um, but with his age, I think it's worth it, especially because it seems like we're in a, we're in win now mode uh, with Trey Young. We want to keep him in Atlanta for as long as possible, so I like that signing a lot. Um, and then Chris Dunn, I thought was a great value. We're paying him uh, $5 million a year over two years. Um, and he's one of the better defenders in the league. Um, I mean, just look at his play type numbers on NBA.com. You'll see what I'm talking about. He is a terrific defender. Um, now, he is, offensively, he's not great at all. 
But I think I think just paying him five million dollars a year to be a defensive specialist that is good value, and I love that signing. Um, now I don't know how much he's gonna play, uh, but I can see him getting minutes in the fourth quarter. Uh, maybe not at the end of the fourth, but uh, when Trey Young's off, when Trey Young's on the bench, he can come in, uh, guard a, a, a lot of positions, probably guard one through three, and then he'll provide value. Um, as a, as a defensive specialist. And then looking at Rondo, um, our offense was so bad when Trey Young was off the floor. And so I think signing Rondo gives us a, a, a very good backup point guard and someone that can run the offense when Trey Young's off the floor. I like that signing. Um, I thought that was good. We, we really needed someone to run the floor when Trey Young's on the bench and when, when he needs a rest because last year our offense was god-awful without Trey Young, and so we needed to improve upon that, and then our last move, uh, we signed Danilo Gallinari, Um, this is the contract I don't love, he's 30 years old, Um, he's a subpar defender, and although he is a really good uh, offensive player, um, he's a great shooter, um, and I think he he can provide value with that, we're paying him 20 million dollars a year, and we're, we signed him to a three-year deal. That's what I don't like. We have committed three years to a 30-year-old who was a subpar defender. I don't love that. And although I think Gallinari gives us some flexibility with John Collins' contract, I just don't think it's worth um, paying him that much money and committing that many re- that many resources to him. I just don't think it's good value. So I don't love this contract. Now, if we trade John Collins, I think the contract looks better. But for now, I'm just, I don't love this deal. But despite me not liking this deal, I do like everything else that we did. And now we're going to be super competitive. And I, I, I believe that we should be in the playoffs this year. Um, and so for that reason, I think this was, this was a successful offseason for the Atlanta Hawks. Now, for the Los Angeles Lakers, they are my final winner of the NBA offseason. Um, now, like last last podcast episode, I did three losers. This time I'm doing three winners, and the Lakers are my third winner. They had easily the best offseason out of anyone in the league. They were, I mean, I can't believe how good of an offseason they had. They didn't do anything in the draft because they traded their, their pick for Dennis Schroeder, um, who can, I don't know if he's going to start, um, even if he comes off the bench, that's good value. I mean, I, Dennis Schroeder, in my opinion, should have won the Sixth Man of the Year award last season. Um, he can come off the bench and um, play really, really well um, running that second unit. And then they re-signed KCP. They signed Wesley Matthews, who was awesome last season with the Bucks, And they signed him to, I think they signed him for the minimum, which is crazy good value. I mean, he was really good defensively for the Bucks last year. He was a good shooter. I love that contract for them. That is such good value. Then they signed Montrez, Montrez Harrell. They signed Marcus Gasol. They re-signed Markeith Morris. And they re-signed Anthony Davis. I mean, I, I just can't believe how good of an offseason they had. I mean, they won the title last year. Um, and then they drastically improved over the offseason. Now, one of the my, one of my biggest issues with the Lakers roster last season was their lack of perimeter shooting and their lack of depth. 
those were two huge issues with their roster. And th- that was one of the, those were like the biggest reasons why I didn't think the Lakers were going to win the title. Now, they proved me wrong, um, and they proved that those weren't like huge issues at all, and they were able to win a title despite those issues. But they have totally fixed that. They got great depth now. They got a lot of good shooters. Dennis Schroeder can shoot the ball well. Um, had one of his best three-point shooting seasons of his career last year with the Thunder. Um, Wesley Matthews can shoot. Anthony Davis, for a big, is a pretty good shooter. I mean, they just, in, in like, ah, I, I just can't believe, how, and I just can't express enough how good of an offseason they had. They just won the title, and they were going to be the odds-on favorite to win the title this year anyway, and they still drastically improved. Like, they are title favorites, and it's not even close. No one has an argument for the best team in the league besides the Los Angeles Lakers. Like, it is unbelievable how good this team is. And I, I mean, I expect them to win the title. I expect LeBron James to get his fifth ring. And if he wins the title this year, uh, the GOAT conversation is, like, real. And LeBron James may have an, may have a... Uh, a, a serious argument to be the greatest player of all time, um, and and I and that's crazy coming from me because I'm someone that has been slamming my fist on the table for Michael Jordan the last few years, but I mean I have to admit that a that LeBron winning a fifth ring at his age would put him possibly ahead of Michael Jordan in the GOAT conversation. And that's what I'm thinking for another podcast episode. But those are my three winners of the NBA offseason. Um, these are teams. Three teams that I believe uh, made some really smart moves, improved their rosters, and put themselves in a position to succeed moving forward. Now I want to move on and talk about James Harden and the James Harden story. Um, This has become a thing over the last week. James Harden, you know, it seems like he doesn't want to be a Houston Rocket anymore. Um, And he's been seen in clubs, which is against the NBA's COVID-19 protocols. And like I said, he seems to not want to be there. And it looks like a trade is imminent. Um, Despite what John Wallace said about how he believes that Harden wants to be there this year, I just, looking at what Harden has done, looking at his actions, I just don't think that's true. Um, And it does like Harden wants out of Houston. Um, And and, and I understand he wants to win a title. Um, It seems like his time there is, is over. Seems like moving on and going to a different a different situation will be best for both him and the Rockets organization. Um, so it seems like a trade is imminent. Now they don't have to trade him. The Rockets don't because he's still on contract for two years. Or now what is it? Is it two years? I believe maybe three. So he's under contract for a few more a few more years. It isn't like he's his contract is expiring. So. Um, like, so he has a ton of leverage. He doesn't. Um, but it just looks like that relationship is toxic now. Um, and I think at some point he will be traded. Um, and I want to talk about some good fits. So I've been playing with the NBA trade, or the trade machine, not the ESPN trade machine. I think it's the NBA, hold on, let me look. Let me look, see what it's called, because this, I actually like this, uh, trade machine better than ESPN's. TradeNBA.com. I've been looking at their trade machine today, um, and there are some teams that I think are really good fits, one being the Denver Nuggets. And they can put together a decent package, 
um, not actually not decent, and pretty good package. They can they can offer Michael Porter Jr., um, Will Barton, and Gary Harris, and then they could also put in throw in some picks, maybe like R.J. Hampton, something like that. But the main piece, uh, um, or the biggest the biggest part of that trade w- or of that package would obviously be Michael Porter Jr., who's um, he's a young player that looks to be a future star. And if he does take that next step for and takes like a leap this year, um, he can turn into a very special player. That's something that I think the Rockets would be interested in. Um, another trade I looked at was from the Atlanta Hawks. And the, the only reason I was looking at the Hawks is because I've seen a lot of people on social media today talking about how the Hawks would be a great fit for Harden. Um, I actually kind of agree. Now, that would be a hard trade to pull off. Um, because the the Hawks just don't have a lot of pieces that I think would um, be interesting, or that that I think would uh, pique the Rockets' interest. Um, they would have to give up like John Collins, Clint Capella, um, uh, Reddish, Hunter, and then picks. I just don't know if that's something, if that's a package the Rockets would be interested in. If I were them, I would not accept that. Uh, but with all, but with the rules, the Hawks can't trade any of the guys they just signed, um, and and that makes a trade for Harden difficult for Atlanta. Uh, but that's another place he could go to. One place that I'm really interested in that I haven't heard a lot, but that's the Dallas Mavericks. I think that that would be an interesting fit, and they could make it work. Um, now they would have to trade Porzingis. And then they could give up Josh Richardson, um, who they would be able to uh, give up. Um, and for some reason, I don't know why they're able to trade him, because they did just get him in a trade. Uh, I don't know what the rules say about that or why that's possible. But they could trade Porzingis and Josh Richardson. Um, and then they could also trade like Tyrell Terry um, to get Harden. That's just another interesting trade. Uh, you know, and then, you know, Philly, you know, that's a spot that's been talked about a lot, um, in, in the James Harden trade scenarios. They, they could give, they can't get Harden without trading Simmons or Embiid. Um, I'm pretty sure that's not possible, but they could give up Embiid. They would also have to give up Embiid and Mike Scott, or Embiid and, uh, who, who would they have to give up? I, I kind of forgot who they would have to give up. I know they could give up Ben Simmons and Mike, and Mike Scott. Uh, the money works with that if they just give up Ben Simmons and Mike Scott for James Harden. Now, if they traded Embiid, uh, they can get Harden and uh, Chris Clemens for Embiid and a couple of and a couple of guys. Are, and I think Danny Green, Embiid, Danny Green, and a pick. I think I'm pretty sure that's the trade that could work out. There's a lot of good fits. Um, it's just it's gonna c- come down to do the Rockets want to part ways with James Harden, and who has the best package? Now it's out, apparently there are reports that the Warriors are no longer interested in James Harden, um, and honestly, every team in the league should be calling Houston right now to try to get James Harden. He's still under contract for multiple years. He's only 31 years old. And I, and I get that that's not young, and I'm not saying it is. But he's still got a couple of years of elite-level production. And he's one of the best players in the league. 
He's an historically he's a historically good shot creator, one of the best scorers of all time. Everyone should be making a call to get him. And I and with with the way the situation is, maybe you can get him for good value. Maybe you don't have to trade everything to get him. You might be able to get him for um, a really good value. And if you can, every team should be calling to try to trade for James Harden. They should. Whether that be the Denver Nuggets, the Clippers, the, the 76ers, the Nets, everyone should be trying to get James Harden right now. There's no excuse not to at least give them a call. But it'll be interesting to see how this situation goes down, if it gets traded, and where it gets traded to. Um, that's a super interesting story. Um, if I were the Rockets, I wouldn't try. I, I don't know, because like with the way their roster is, I don't know. If you can get the right the right trade offer, you make the trade. Um, but I wouldn't, if I were the Rockets, I wouldn't be, um, you know, I wouldn't be in a hurry to trade James Harden because he's still a great player and he's still got a couple years left on his deal. So if I were them, I wouldn't be in a hurry to trade him uh, unless there was a really, really good uh, trade offer for him. Alright, now let's talk about BYU Coastal Carolina, which was such a good game. And this game had huge playoff implications. Um, it, BYU was rank, went into this game ranked 13th. Uh, Coastal was 18th. It was a home game for, for Coastal Carolina. And it was a, a matchup between the Mormons and the Mullets. So, it, it was a huge game. Coastal ended up winning 22-17. to and what a game it was. Coastal Carolina had a great game plan. Um, and what they wanted to do, they knew they couldn't win a shootout with BYU. BYU has an elite offense, and they have one of the best quarterbacks in the country in Zach Wilson, who's going to be a first-round pick. Zach Wilson is a stud, and if they got into a shootout with him, they were not going to be able to come out victorious. So they knew they had to run the ball, control the pace, and that's exactly what they did. They did a great job of that. Um, they were really successful running the ball, um, and they dominated the time of possession. And they made the game like the game. There weren't a lot of possessions in this game, and BYU didn't have a lot of opportunities to score. Um, and so all of that played into the hands of Coastal Carolina. Um, and BYU wasn't bad. They just like this game was so different to the type of game they're used to playing. Like, they're used to playing with a lot of drives, a lot of possessions, and they're used to playing in high-scoring games, and they're used to putting up, like, 50, like, 40 to 50 points a game. Um, and they just weren't able to do that with the way that Coastal Carolina was running their offense. Um, and, and at the beginning of the game, you know, BYU, they had a huge touchdown taken away early because of holding. That hurt them. Um, and then once Coastal Carolina got the ball... They did a great job of um, forcing BYU's defensive ends to make difficult decisions. They were running triple option and speed option runs, just trying to attack the outside um, and then force their defensive ends into difficult situations. And uh, with 13:51 left in the in the second, uh, they had a 42-yard touchdown run. I think this was actually BYU. Um, they went ahead. Uh, and then with 11, 11, 11 minutes and 57 seconds in, left in the second quarter, McCall actually fumbled for them on a read option out of a split backfield. Uh, this gave BYU possession. Um, and they had 
BYU had fourth and one with ten minutes left in the second quarter. They picked the ball to the running back toward the right. He threw it back to uh, Zach Wilson, who then threw the ball deep. He actually had a guy wide open, shorter, um, not as deep past the sticks. Um, but he threw a he made he made a great throw to number eighteen along the sideline, who then dropped the ball. Um, it was a it wasn't the easiest catch in the world to make, um, but it was a catch that he should have made. And then Coastal Carolina, you know, they got the ball back with great field position, and um, they had a fourth and goal with four minutes left in the second quarter. They ended up scoring. Uh, they responded with a touchdown. Um, and then with seventeen seconds left in the first half, this uh, this like nothing really happened at the end of the half but I, I gotta talk about this throw <laughs> with 17 seconds left in the half Zach Wilson made an incredible throw if you haven't seen it go back watch the highlights you'll see it he made a beautiful throw across his body to the middle of the field Why? while he was running towards his right and he was able to make a beautiful throw for a first down. It was incredible. Just, you've got to watch it. Um, and then, like, there was a fight at the end of the first half because two Coastal players tried to kill Zach Wilson. They were blocking him because he threw a pick on a Hail Mary at the end of the half. Um, and, they were just, and they were blocking him, but they took it a little bit too far. Um, and, you know, they honestly could have hurt Zach Wilson. BYU was happy with it. Their benches, both benches cleared. And they had a little fight at the end of the half. Luckily, they, they got it cleared up um, and they were able to play. But that was something of note or something to keep note of. And then in the second half, things were pretty much the same. Costa was running the ball, uh, dominating time of possession. And BYU, they turned the ball over on their first drive of the second half. And Coastal, you know, like I said, they continued to run the ball into the clock. And it scored with 11 minutes left. 11, 11 minutes and 35 seconds left in the fourth. Um, and, and BYU just, they struggled um, late in the game. I mean, they, they kept they kept stopping Coastal Carolina, getting possession of the ball, but they, they, they just couldn't score. Um, and with 10 minutes and 17 seconds left in the fourth, BYU had a second and 10. Wilson checked down to his running back who then broke a tackle, but then for some reason he ran like 20 yards behind the line of scrimmage for a huge loss that killed the drive. Um, and, and that put him in a third, and four, a third and 30. They ended up punting. They got the ball back, uh, but then they eventually faced a fourth and seven near the 50 with only a few minutes left. They had to punt the ball. Um, and they got the ball back one last time. They kept punting, and they kept getting the ball back. And they, they had one more opportunity to drive down the field and score. Um, and they came up one yard short. That was an unreal final possession. Um, there was a huge play where there was like seven seconds, like, yeah, seven seconds left. Um, and it looked like BYU had one option. They could either uh, try to score there, uh, or they can, you know, get a short gain, try to attack the sideline, um, and then make it easier. And Coastal Carolina gave them that second option. I mean, they they basically handed them a free 10-plus yard gain for free. Um, and that made that last play really easy. Or it, it just made it a lot easier for them. Um, they didn't have as far to go to score a touchdown. So I didn't like that decision by Coastal. Uh, but BYU came up one yard short. 
Coastal made a huge play on the last play of the game and ended up winning. Huge win by Coastal Carolina. Um, but I do want to say props to both teams for actually playing in this game. You know, BYU, um, they're trying, they were trying to strengthen uh, their resume to try to give themselves an opportunity to make it into the playoff. Um, so they they did a great. I mean, I, I just I was impressed with them actually going down to Coastal Carolina, going on to on the road to play this game, just to try to give themselves an, an opportunity to play for the national championship. They ended up losing, and Coastal Carolina got a huge win. And honestly, I think they have an argument to be ranked over Cincinnati. They have two quality wins, uh, t- two wins versus top twenty five opponents. They're ten and zero. Um, and, and, and they're good statistically. Like, it's not like they're just beating up on crappy teams, or, or, or it's not like they have quality wins, but they're not actually good. No, both are true. They're good. The advanced analytics say that, and, and their resume shows. So, I think there's an argument to be made that they should be ranked ahead of Cincinnati. Um, uh, I don't know if I would make that argument. I don't know where I side in that argument. I think I would side with Cincinnati, but I do definitely think there's an argument to be made that Coastal Carolina should be ranked ahead of Cincinnati. It's interesting. Um, We'll see what happens. I doubt Coastal Carolina makes it into the playoff, but that was a huge win for them and a huge win for their case to make it into the playoffs. Now, let's end this podcast by talking about the Raiders versus the Jets game. Um... There was a lot of controversy in the end. But I was really, I gotta say, I was impressed by the way the Jets played. Uh, and, and I will say, the Raiders won 31-28. I need, to, I need to start off with that. But I was impressed by the way the Jets performed on both sides of the ball. I thought they, were, I thought they played well. For a team who hadn't won a game all year, for a team who had struggled and was easily the worst team in the league, I thought they played pretty well. And honestly... I find it hard to believe that the Jets lost when you look at the team stats because they had the same amount of first downs as the Raiders. They had less third downs, better third down efficiency, more yards per play, more points per play, better red zone efficiency, and only one more turnover. Um, I think what did kill the Jets is that the Raiders were so much, like their passing attack was so much better and that one turnover did hurt. I think that's why they ended up losing. Um, but looking at the team stats, you'd say, like, you thought the Jets should have won the game. Or I, th- I thought that when I first looked at the team stats. Um, but I was really impressed by the Jets. They ran the ball incredibly well. Um, they, they really made it difficult for the Raiders to run the ball. The Raiders missed Josh Jacobs a lot this game. I think they had, like, two less than three yards per rushing attempt. That's bad. Um, and, and, and their dynamic offense is his reason why they're they've been successful this season. Um, they got a, they like Derek Carr's been playing so well. They got an explosive outside receiver in Henry Ruggs. But combining all that with their their just their tough pound uh, their their tough run game with Josh Jacobs, just the combination of those two makes uh, makes their offense really really hard to stop. But when you take Josh Jacobs out of the equation, it makes their offense a little bit more one-dimensional. Um, and then just the, the Jets did have a difficult time stopping Darren Waller. He had 200 yards in this game. Um, 
Yeah, he had 13 catches for 200 yards and two touchdowns. So he he went off, um, and the Ray and the Jets just couldn't stop him. But they did a great job of limiting what the Raiders could do in the run game without Josh Jacobs. That made it harder for them to have success offensively. Um, and and the Jets ran the ball a lot. And Sam Darnold played quite well. I mean, he was making good decisions. The run game was working. Um, their offensive line played super well in, in, in just in terms of run blocking. Um, they created big holes on the outside. Um, and they did a great job of, you know, making it difficult for the Raiders to run the ball, but also running the ball well themselves and generating offense on the ground. Uh, now, when the turnovers hurt them. They had th- two two turnovers. Let's look, actually. Uh, Raiders versus Jets. Let me look because I don't actually have the, the turnover numbers written down. I think they had two turnovers. Because Sam Darnold had a really bad pick at one point. Um, and then there were, I think, a fumble or two. Yeah, so they, they turned the ball over three times. That was bad. Um, but the Raiders also fumbled twice. And the Raiders were actually down. Were they down double digits at one point? I can't remember. I know, I know the Raiders were upset, or the Jets were up 7 nothing early in the game. And then the Raiders uh, turned the ball over. The, uh, a car threw a pick because... Rugs dropped the pass, and the turnovers de- definitely hurt the Jets. Um, but they were super competitive, and I thought their defense played quite well, or at least their run defense. Um, but the the main thing I want to talk about with this game is the final play. So the Raiders had one final drive to win the game. They were down t- uh, twenty three, no twenty four, um, twenty eight and twenty four. And they have one drive left. One play. And I'll just talk about the final play. They have one final play left. Um, they were, were they inside the 50? I think they were maybe just inside the 50 or just outside the 50. Uh, whatever. They were near the 50-yard line. And they have one opportunity um, to score a touchdown. So you would think that the Jets would, you know, either run prevent, rush like three, uh, but have everyone else cover deep down the field, um, keep the ball um, in the middle of the field to run out the clock, and just stop them from attacking and from killing them with a deep shot. Uh, but they didn't. And Greg Williams, their defensive coordinator, ended up calling uh, cover zero, which means there's no safety help, and everyone's manned up. So everyone has uh, one-on-one coverage. There's no safety help. So... You have to play great coverage because, like I've said, there was no safety help. Now, why Greg Williams called this, I don't know why. He, he's an aggressive defensive coordinator. I get that. But this is the end of the game. The Raiders have an, a, an explosive receiver in Henry Ruggs who can kill you deep. And who does he have covering him? A guy who was undrafted and ran a 4-6-40. Um, so, not the greatest matchup. Uh, for the Jets, and there's no safety help, so if he gets cooked, the play's over, and they're going to give up the touchdown, and what happens, uh, the Jets blitz, the blitz doesn't get in in time, and Derek Carr is able to make a beautiful throw to Henry Ruggs for the game, ending touchdown, the Raiders win, and everyone's sitting wondering why why Greg Williams made the call, why they were in cover zero with no safety help, um, and everyone's wondering if they're, if they are tanking, 
um, on purpose. And the first thing I want to say about them, like, are they tanking? No. Because this is these people's jobs. This is the coach's jobs. This is the player's job. Their job is to go out on Sundays and win games. They don't care about a draft pick. They don't care about Trevor Lawrence uh, coming to their franchise. They care about earning their paychecks. That's all they care about. They care about winning and earning their paychecks. Now, some guys may only care about the money. Some some guys care about both. Uh, But nonetheless, they only care about winning and earning their paychecks and getting paid and earning a living. They don't care about getting a better a better draft pick. So no, they weren't they weren't tanking on purpose. Greg Williams is just a super aggressive defensive coordinator. He made an aggressive call at the end of the game, trying to make Derek Carr uncomfortable in the pocket, and ended up biting him in the butt, and they lost the game because of it. Uh, but I was impressed with the way they played. I thought the Jets were super competitive, and then, and they did a great job of making the Raiders one-dimensional without Josh Jacobs. But that final play, it was a bad call. I get that's what uh, Greg Williams does, but in that situation, you need to give your guys some safety help. Um, at least call cover one. Come on, at least give your guy, like, get, give your outside corner going up against Henry Ruggs one safety, or, or at least bracket Henry Ruggs, because, like, I get that he's a rookie and that he's struggling in this game, but he's still Henry Ruggs. He's still a guy that ran a sub-4-3-40 at the combine this year. He's still such, like, an explosive athlete, someone who's been killing teams uh, with his speed this season. So I don't know why they didn't at least give his corner at least one safety or or, or at least bracket him. Uh, but that's what happened. It was an interesting call, uh, a poor decision in my opinion. But yeah, so that's all I want to talk about for today. Hope y'all enjoyed that. Um, I do. Oh, I do want to make an announcement. I do want to start uh, doing. I don't know if I'll do it like do a podcast episode once a week on this, but I want to start talking about the NFL draft and more specifically NFL draft prospects. So. Um, when I do this for, for these episodes, I'll take a few draft prospects, talk about them. I'll probably go position by position. So, uh, the prospects I talk about in each episode will all be the same position, but I'll, I'll watch them film, um, and then talk about these guys, what I think, and give my opinion of each player. So that's something I want to start doing in preparation for the NFL draft. I know it's a few months away, um, but I think this will be fun to do. Um, and so just keep your eye on that and, and just expect that to come soon. But anyway, that's all I have for this episode. I hope y'all enjoyed it and I will see y'all next time.